Hop, hop, hooray. Nordstrom Rack's got sweet deals on everything Easter, which is Sunday, March 31st. Get to Nordstrom Rack now and save on Kate Spade, New York, Two-Faced, Steve Madden, Calvin Klein, and more from just $30. Score great brands and great prices on Easter looks for everyone, plus spring decor, gifts, and all kinds of deliciousness. Rack up the deals today at your Nordstrom Rack store. What will you find? The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done, too. And the available Pro-Access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. And available ProPower Onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. Patients of the Trans-Allegheny Lunatics Asylum in Weston, West Virginia, were victims to all sorts of horrors disguised as therapy in the late 19th and early 20th century, such as lobotomies. Lobotomies were a medical procedure, and I use the word medical very loosely here, in which a patient-slash-helpless victim would be first rendered unconscious via electroshock, which sounds like a horrible way to be rendered unconscious. You know, I guess general anesthesia, which they did have access to then in some rudimentary form, was just too much of a hassle. Should we, should we get some ether, doctor? No, 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 just that. Yeah, that's clear across the, the, the building. <laughs> just, just grab me those wires. Just grab me those wires. Way, way more fun to shock him to sleep anyway. Then the doctor slash sadist slash monster took a sharp ice pick-like instrument. It actually became known as the ice pick method, which is not a comforting way to describe brain surgery. Doctor, what, what surgical tool would you be using for the brain operation? Uh, I, I think I'll go with the uh, ice pick today, nurse. Why don't you, why don't you head to the staff lounge and re- retrieve my medical instrument from the refrigerator? Then the doctor would insert the ice pick above the patient's eyeball through the orbit of the eye into the frontal lobe of the brain, moving the instrument back and forth. Because why not? Just, just wiggle it around in there. What could go wrong? That's just their noodle you're fucking with. Just their eyeball the old ice pick is bumping up against. You know, when you're done, why not just get a sledgehammer and cure their upset stomach? Then the doctor would do the same thing on the other side of the face because, you know, ice picking through one eyeball into the old thought factory just isn't going to get the job done. They also used electroshock therapy for all kinds of other stuff in addition uh, to prepping patients to be turned into zombies. You know, stuff like, you know, you feeling sad? Let's shock your brain a little bit. You look tired. Time for some bolts. Don't enjoy being shocked all the time? Well, strap in. A little more juice will cure you of not liking getting juiced, you party pooper. Hydrotherapy was also used, a form of treatment that when used today can be as uh, innocuous as a cold shower followed by a hot shower, causing the body's surface vessels to constrict and pushing blood to the body's core, flushing internal organs, including the brain, with fresh blood and conserving heat. Hot water following this uh, pushes blood back away from the internal organs, back out into the surface vessels, you know, and away from the brain, cleansing the body's core. Back in West Virginia, though, hydrotherapy meant being forced to remain in an ice-cold bath for hours on end, 
Patients sometimes restrained read tied down into the freezing tub, often as a punishment for misbehaving rather than as treatment. We notice you've been acting out and trying to escape from the hospital, which is really strange considering we've been shocking the shit out of you several times a week. Maybe being tied down into a tub of ice will get your mind working right. If not, I guess we'll just have to bring in Dr. Ice Pick McBrainstabber to heal you. We're just trying to heal you. Well, I'm not sure anyone was properly healed in the early days of the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum or any other of America's late 19th and early 20th century asylums. Find out how just bad, uh, find out uh, just how bad it got, how much worse it was before asylums. Take a little peek into some of the worst, most terrifying mental institutions in the world's history, along with the state of psychiatric care today in this truly mind-boggling and utterly insane edition of Time Suck. You're listening to Time Suck. Oh, welcome to today's show, everybody. Uh, thanks for all the, the new listeners. Big thanks to Dustin, who emailed me to do a time suck about the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum, uh, a place I'd never heard of, and actually uh, a place where uh, uh, Charles Manson, former time suck topic, apparently uh, spent a little time, rumored to have spent some time there in his West Virginia youth, uh, which explains him even more. Little nod to a few time sucks back uh, with that guy. And, uh, and a big thanks to Sydney. Uh, Sispula, I hope I'm saying that right. Uh, S-Z-Y-P-U-L-A, Sydney Sispula. Thank you for the super kind words uh, on Facebook. Hopefully I'm pronouncing your last name. And I'm assuming Polish or at least Eastern European name, right? Uh, thanks for messaging me about the mistreatment of the mentally ill in our nation's history, uh, the horrific treatment slash torture they were subjected to, specifically lobotomies. Definitely getting into that uh, heavily today. So Dustin and Sydney and, and the rest of you listeners, I hope, I hope this episode lives up to whatever expectations you have put upon it. So let's start with a little examination of what went on at the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum before jumping out uh, to touch on, you know, the history of barbaric mental health treatment in general and, and a quick look at some of uh, the other horrible uh, asylums that were out there. Construction of this particular mental health facility began in 1858 in western West Virginia, and it was constructed like many other 19th century asylums using the Kirkbride Plan. That's an approach created by Philadelphia psychiatrist Thomas Story Kirkbride in the mid-19th century, and it emphasized architecture designed to have a curative effect on the patients with long, staggering wings that gave all the rooms access to light and fresh air. Basically, Kirkbride asylums are those big, gothic old buildings uh, constantly used in horror movies when the setting is an insane asylum. It, it is the go-to. When you think of a horror movie in the insane asylum, you are thinking of, of one that was designed along with the Kirkbride plan. Giant, ominous stone buildings, you know, because that's what you want. When, you, when your brain's a little scrambled up, or you're feeling down, and you want to get better. And when you're feeling anxious or sad, you just want to spend time in a huge, cavernous, shadowy, stone, cold building tailor-made for creating spooky sounds and playing tricks on the mind. H how did no one think of that? Just, hey, Mr. Kirkbride, do you think uh, uh, maybe we could put the mentally ill in, like, peaceful little lakeside cottages, you know, maybe cozy, unintimidating, maybe, maybe a calm, babbling brook running through the grounds? Get some nice pastel colors for the interior walls, you know, just little cozy places. They don't make lots of creepy big building noises. <laughs> no, 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 no. There's no better place for someone struggling to get a firm grip on reality uh, than a giant, dark, surreal, evil castle-looking building. You know, the kind of place that, that, you know, has a dungeon before ever seven foot inside. <laughs> Come on, <laughs> I'm a doctor. What the hell? Well, construction wasn't completed until 1881 because this building is no fucking joke. 
Uh, and because the Civil War slowed down uh, things a bit, uh, the building was used to house soldiers on both sides of the war. The location, uh, which was named Camp Tyler during the war, switched back and forth between Union and Confederate forces. Uh, random trivia, largest hand-cut stone masonry building in North America, and supposedly the second largest in the world, next to Moscow's The Kremlin. So you probably have an image of that in your brain. Uh, they went big in old Weston, West Virginia. And they used primarily prison laborers uh, to build it, so that might have slowed things down a bit. Uh, they're not the most mo- motivated, uh, you know, construction people, you know. Somebody just happened to be some random job, and you're like, all right, no, now go build this big stone building. I don't know that they're the most skilled people to, to do that. But they did, all, they did also a, a, a ship in, I'd say flew in, but it was the mid-19th century. They shipped in some master stonemasons from Germany and Ireland to oversee the prison workforce. Uh, and I have pictures of the building uh, up at timesuckpodcast.com in the episode description. It, it is a very impressive-looking building. I would never want to fucking spend the night there. But uh, it looks exactly as scary as you think a massive hand-cut stone building would look. Extremely gothic. A, a merging of the Tudor revival and gothic revival styles, to be exact, for any architecture fans out there. Uh, the first pa- patients were admitted in 1864 uh, to what was then known as the West Virginia Hospital for the Insane. A little softer title than Lunatic Asylum, but it still feels a bit derogatory. You know, why couldn't they just go with mental hospital? Or, or, or just hospital? Jesus. If you're going to call it the Hospital for the Insane, uh, why not just take it a half step further and call it like the Looney Bin? Maybe the Cuckoo Factory. Really make everyone feel uh, awesome about being admitted there. You okay, John? I heard you spent some time at the hospital last week. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, I'm, I'm fine. Yeah, no, I'm to- totally fine. W- which hospital were you at? Oh, oh, uh, you know, I, I just spent uh, a couple days in the cuckoo factory. <laughs> no, no big deal. Nothing to be ashamed of. So why, why uh, were patients admitted to Trans-Allegheny? <laughs> this is one of the most fascinating parts of this episode to me. Uh, the first patient was admitted in 1864. Uh, a female housekeeper from Ohio uh, said to be suffering from, quote, domestic trouble. Now, now, there's no listing of what mental illness she suffered from because, in all likelihood, she wasn't mentally ill. Her mental illness was domestic trouble. That was another fun aspect of 19th century mental health treatment. The, the cures were barbaric, and a lot of the patients didn't need curing. They weren't, they weren't insane. There were people with actual severe mental illnesses like schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, you know, psychopaths, you know, uh, diseases they didn't, they didn't really know, they didn't have terms for back then. Uh, and these people were walking these gothic halls uh, along with people brought in because they suffered from things as vague as domestic trouble. Uh, and here are some other reasons people were committed to the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum, taken from a list uh, on a plaque called Reasons for Admission 1864-1889. The full list is available at timesuckpodcast.com. I, I highly suggest you look through it. It's so fucking good. But here's a, here's a few. There's about 50 of them on there. Uh, rumor of husband murder. <laughs> That's an actual reason for admission. Rumor of husband murder. Ma'am, uh, we believe you may have murdered your husband, and you know what? Maybe you didn't. Either way, uh, we think it's best if you sit in this tub of ice. And, and uh, don't worry. Don't, <laughs> don't worry. We are doctors. This is Ice Pick, uh, uh, Dr. Ice Pick McBrainstabber, and this is his associate, uh, Dr. Shockey McShockerton. Uh, novel reading, another one. Novel reading, as in reading too much fiction. <laughs> Janice, I'm worried about you. You've been reading a lot of books lately, and not just textbooks. You crack open that copy of Moby Dick one more time, and I swear to Christ I'm taking you to the cuckoo factory. Seduction and disappointment. (laughs) What the fuck? Why are you here, Thomas? Well, your family is worried about how young women uh, uh, you've been seducing them. 
been seducing a lot of young women, and those young women are, are, are concerned about how often you disappoint them. So don't worry. Nothing a little ice pick wiggling won't clear up. Deranged masturbation. That's another one. That's a quote. Deranged masturbation. Nathaniel, it's not the, mastur- it's not the masturbation we're concerned about. It's the, it's the deranged uh, aspect of it. One day you're, you're jerking it with the wrong hand. One day you're trying to rub it with your foot. Using an old glove, hot dog bun, dish towel. It's deranged the way you're jerking yourself. Uh, politics. This might be the scariest one. It's just apparently you can be admitted for any sort of political idea. Uh, those around you just didn't think you should have. <laughs> Laziness. Laziness. Uh, that, that one I kind of like. You get a fucking job, Harry, or you can go relax over at the goddamn asylum. Ah, oh, just a couple more. I, I, I could do an entire episode of just this list. Uh, business nerves. That's a quote. Business nerves. We, we at the board don't like how nervous you've been at work these past few months while well, the company has been tanking. I know you're worried about losing your job and ended up destitute, but do you have to be so fucking nervous about it all the time? Uh, bad whiskey. Bad whiskey was a reason for admission. Dad, it's not the amount of whiskey you drink and the concerns is it's the quality. Nothing but bottom shelf or moonshine. Can't, can't you just drink a little Glen Livet like a man our family can respect? And finally, my favorite, uh, <laughs> parents were cousins. That's, oh, God. Cue the banjo. Cue an easy, hacky West Virginia joke here. <laughs> Look, I'm not saying it's a good idea for cousins to have kids, but, but how does having cousins for parents qualify you as a reason to be institutionalized? That feels like they just couldn't pin any of the other nonsense on someone. They just wanted to lock up, and they just went with that. Just, you know, just, does, does he drink bad whiskey? Ah, damn it. Is he lazy? Ah, shit. Has he ever said anything political? Ah, he gad. Has he ever masturbated in some deranged way? Ah. Ah, only the traditional method. That's unfortunate. Could his parents possibly be cousins? You're not sure. Do they look like they could be cousins? You guess so? <laughs> Good enough for me. Bring him in. I'll get the shackles. Oh, man. So let's talk about a little, uh, a little quick uh, uh, overview of life in this asylum at Trans-Allegheny. Uh, uh, so, you know, as you can see, you can be brought here for almost any reason. And a lot of people were brought to this place, designed to hold no more than 250 patients by Kirkbride so they could experience the open, open air and, and uh, space. The facility eventually held roughly 2,400 Twenty, like oh, ah, Jesus, like ninety, nine times over nine times as, as many as they were supposed to have. Yeah, doctors uh, performing horrible procedures on people who may or may not have been mentally ill. Sounds like probably most of them weren't. You, you had nearly ten times the amount of patients the place was built to hold. Overcrowding leads to chaos. Violence breaks out. Several instances of murder over the years. In one instant, uh, this just shows how little the the staff was paying attention. Uh, two patients hung one of their fellow patients using a, a set of uh, bed sheets. And when he didn't die from that, they couldn't kill him that way. Uh, they cut him down. So he's, so he's hanging up there, still alive. They cut him down, use a metal bed frame to crush his head. That had to have taken a while. That's not, <laughs> that's not like a quick, like in a, out of a prison movie when someone's walking by somebody else and they just, <laughs> and a couple quick stabs in the back, and then they just walk on and pass the knife off to another guy who passes it off to another guy. No, this, this was an ordeal. This was a loud ordeal. And, uh, you know, just no one stopped it. There were other murders, rapes. Even the staff was attacked. One time a nurse went missing. Her body was found two months later hidden at the bottom of an unused staircase. Hopefully her body was hidden and things things weren't so chaotic that just a a dead body laying at the bottom of the stairs goes unnoticed for a few months. Uh, Sterilizations were also carried out at Trans-Allegheny. That's that's fun. 
Uh, records of how many and uh, are really hard to find, probably because it was <laughs> it really wasn't legal. Not totally. Uh, ice picks to the brain, electroshock therapy, ice baths, occasional beatings, maybe a rape. Yeah, you can get snipped, get your get your nuts whacked off. That <laughs> I could I could find nothing about exactly how, but I mean they mentioned castration. So who knows if it was chemical or, or blade, but uh, ah, probably a couple, probably some nuts got chopped off. I can't confirm that one a thousand percent, but uh, everything I, that I could find alluded strongly to that. Uh, a series of reports published by the Charleston Gazette in 1949 uh, revealed poor sanitation and a lack of furniture, light, and heat in much of the building. So you know, on top of everything I've already said, you know, it was freezing and sprinkled with shit, and you're there all because you read too many books, man. What a what a great place to have a life. So, um, and, 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 and all at a place that was supposed to be part of a new mental health movement in the, in the U.S., a place where the mentally ill be treated better than they had before. You know, like, as I stated earlier, the asylum was built according to the Kirkbride plan. Let's get into that a little bit more. Thomas Kirkbride, uh, Thomas Story Kirkbride, uh, was born in 1809. He was a Philadelphia psychiatrist, and he thought institutions for the mentally ill should be built according to what he called moral treatment. And moral treatment was basically a response away from uh, thinking that people were possessed by demons. <laughs> they were trying to, they were trying to move away from that, which is which is a step in the right direction. And the typical floor plan uh, had long, rambling wings arranged in echelon, staggered so each connected wing received sunlight and fresh air. And it was meant to promote privacy and comfort for patients. The building form itself was meant to have a curative effect, as I, as I stated, a, a special apparatus for the care of lunacy. Uh, whose grounds should be highly improved and, and tastefully ornamented. You know, the idea of this institu- into, yeah, institutionalization was central to Kirkbride's plan for effectively treating patients with mental illness. Uh, they, were, they, were, they were large, imposing, Victoria-area institutional buildings with extensive surrounding, you know, well-kept grounds, which often included farmland. Sometimes uh, the patients worked there as a part of physical exercise and therapy. Yeah, and, it does, it's, and it sounds good in theory. It does sound good in theory, I will say, you know, to have that kind of... Uh, yeah, it's supposed to be a tranquil place, but it didn't work out like he intended, you know. Uh, he didn't help the mentally ill like he wanted to, unfortunately. Uh, he did, however, literally build a setting for hundreds of horror movies. So that's, that's you know, that's something. His giant, scary mental hospitals are all over the place, and most of them are now in ruins. And uh, over 60 were built in the mid to late 1800s. And, and again, they're built all over the place, from Wenton, West Virginia, to Philly, to D.C., Cleveland, Napa, California, Bangor, Maine. I don't know. Maybe, uh, maybe they influenced young Stephen King a bit. Who knows? Even to the Fergus Falls State Hospital in Fergus Falls, Minnesota, home to a, a friend uh, of mine, just a little place, like 15,000 people, I think, but also uh, home to a fantastic comic, Chad Daniels, who I believe has a new album coming out any day now. It's a little shout-out for Chad. Uh, also a listener of the show, so that's fun. Uh, and and uh, so here's what led up to this kind of reformation and, and why these buildings were built. Uh, it all started with uh, Dorothea Dix. Uh, Dorothea did. I can't bring out the Kirk uh, bring up Kirkbride without referencing her. She's the reason the building designs were commissioned in the first place. Before the Gothic Kirkbride institutions, the buildings nearly everyone pictures in their minds when they think of an insane asylum. There, there really were very, very few institutions in America for the treatment of the mentally ill. Very few. Prior to about 1850, uh, you know, people society deemed insane were were customarily actually or customarily uh, thrown into snake pits, uh, attacked by wild dogs, uh, or sometimes even thrown into tar pits and set on fire uh, as people watched. Okay, I'm kidding about those last couple things. Kidding about that. I just, I just felt the urge to go over the top, and I went with it. No, in the early 19th century, uh, there were, uh, again, very few hospitals for the mentally ill in the United States. The first institution dedicated to the treatment of the mentally ill uh, was the Eastern State Hospital in Williamsburg, Virginia. Started ama- uh, admitting patients way back in 1773. 
Uh, even earlier than that, the Pennsylvania Hospital, founded in Philly back in uh, 1751, it had a small section dedicated to the treatment of the insane, uh, started admitting them in 1752. Worldwide, you can actually trace some form of treatment for the mentally ill as far back as the Greek physician Hippocrates, or uh, <laughs> Hippocrates, there we go, the man the Hippocratic Oath is named after who prescribed various treatments for the mentally ill that included uh, rest, quiet, and primitive medicine. That was way back in 400 B.C. Muslim doctors in the Arab world began uh, uh, building asylums for the mentally ill back in the 18th century, uh, places like Cairo and Egypt. The first uh, European asylum for the treatment of the insane was the Valencia Mental Hospital, opened in Valencia, Spain in 1406. In London, England, the, the Priory of St. Mary of Bethlehem, which later became known as the Notorious Asylum Bedlam, that was founded in 1247. Uh, and none of these places had any fucking idea how to treat mental illness. Uh, some of them, you know, at least didn't torture patients. But none of them cured anything. And they were really a drop in the bucket to, to combat the problem of mental illness in ancient times. Most mentally Ill, Ill people uh, were taken care of you know, by uh, uh, various religious institutions. You know, People deemed mad being locked away in monasteries, for example. Uh, many uh, were just cared for by their families. And since the families didn't know how to care for them, they were like, often like, literally just like, locked in a basement or cellar or some room. They just like, let's just you know, fucking throw some food under the door, clean up their shit from time to time. You know, think about sloth from Goonies. It, it was that kind of shit for most people who had severe mental illness. Uh, and they couldn't cure them because they didn't know what caused people to act, to act crazy. In medieval Europe, you know, for example, uh, most people believed that mental illness was a symptom of a troubled soul. They thought the cause was demonic possession, sorcery, or witchcraft. And, you know, a common treatment was exorcism. And this line of thinking was, you know, still, again, very prevalent in 19th century America. A lot of, a lot of witches were burned at the stake. Uh, they were probably just people who were mentally ill. Another prevailing notion throughout history was that it was a choice. These people were choosing to act nuts. You know, just avoiding life's responsibilities with their horseshit nonsense. Stop, stop choosing to be such a ding-dong. Get back to work. Think about how it must have been back then. Like, uh, like, I lived in Santa Monica, California for six years, and that city has a ton of obviously insane homeless people. Like, clearly, the second you see them, like, oh, that guy has severe mental illness. People, you know, with, like, dirt-covered faces, you know, just wild eyes, shaking their arms back and forth, you know, looking up in the sky and yelling. People getting in heated arguments with themselves or some person that no one can see. And it's always, uh, always somewhat shocking, you know, when, when, when you see that, at least for me. But I, but I always know when I see it, what's going on. I know that there's some type of, they're having some kind of psychotic or delusional episode. They have a serious mental health problem. They're in need of medication and care. But what if I thought that they were, like, choosing to act like that? Or, or, or what if you thought they were possessed by a demon? Or, you know, that their immoral choices led them to this crazed state? It's like, no wonder the mentally ill were shackled up and so horribly mistreated. You know, if I believed in demons, if I believed in actual fucking demons, think about just that for a second, that reality. Like, like, you know, you believe in literal monsters, paranormal, nefarious, malicious spirits that want to damn every soul around them to hell forever, where there's going to be gnashing of teeth and torture. And I believe that, and then there's some schizophrenic dude in my neighborhood, and I see him yelling crazy talk at my kids. I'm going to want that fucker to be shackled up. You know, do what you got to do. Throw him in a dungeon, shackle him, whip the devil out of him, drill a hole in his head, let the demon out. Whatever. I don't, I don't care. Just keep him from spreading his, his evil ways and damning my children's souls. You know, I think about that because sometimes it's, it's so easy to, to demonize medieval people, but, you know, uh, I often just forget what kind of mental space they were living in. I mean, these were people who truly believed in their heart of hearts that they, in witches and demons and devils and sorcerers and some angry, always watching God, getting, you know, judging them, <laughs> sending them to hell. It's a lot of extreme shit. Constantly worried about damnation. Well, a lot of these uh, medieval attitudes came over to the Americas with our good old puritanical roots. And before Dorothea Dix, most mentally ill people were, again, hidden at home. 
hidden by some religious group or in almshouses, you know, those, which are those group homes run by charity organizations to house the disabled, downtrodden, elderly, etc. Uh, they were thrown in prisons with non-insane criminals. Only a few uh, were housed in, in, the, in, again, the very few mental health hospitals that existed, and those, you know, there was serious overcrowding and mistreatment. And then in the mid-19th century, Dorothea Dix almost single-handedly started changing all that. She was born in Hamden, Maine in 1802, and by her teens, she became a school teacher, partly because she was interested in educating others at an early age, and partly because back then, you didn't have to even go to high school to become a teacher. I'm not kidding. Isn't that weird? Can, can you read gooder than most? Can, can you do some arithmetic? <laughs> well, grab some apples, blackboard, and desk. You're a teacher now. You're a teacher now. You are a teacher now. Sit in teacher chair. <laughs> Dorothea, she had a very limited formal education uh, herself. Uh, in 1821, she opens her own school at the age of 19. By the age of 24, she published a teacher's guide that became extremely popular, going through 60 reprints over the next 30 years, uh, conversations on common things or guide to knowledge with questions. Yep, she was one of those people. The kind you both admire and also uh, hate because they make you feel bad about yourself, you know, when you think about them. She opened a school and published a successful book by the age of 24. When I was 24, I was struggling to make 500 bucks a week telling half-thought-out jokes to drunks in hotel lounges and the worst comedy clubs in America, sleeping in Motel 6s. Damn it. Well, she goes on to publish several other books, including some uh, books of poetry. She continues teaching. By all accounts, she was an extremely hard worker. And like some overachiever, she put herself, uh, pushed herself uh, too hard, had a mental breakdown in 1836 at the age of 34, and uh, sp- spent some time in, in a little institution herself. And luckily, she, she had rich family members, and she was able to uh, uh, be out quickly and uh, head to Europe for a year to kind of convalesce and recover. Uh, she did, and she also met some uh, uh, early mental health advocates over in Europe. And, you know, just changed her way of seeing things. She came back to the States with a new passion for the better treatment of the mentally ill, and after receiving a large inheritance from the death of her grandma in 1837, was able to focus her very active mind entirely on reform and charity. Uh, no more teaching those damn kids. Finally, in 1841, uh, Dorothea Dix volunteered to teach Sunday school classes to female convicts in East Cambridge Jail over in New Jersey during her, or I believe it was New Jersey, during her visit, she saw people with mental illnesses who had been treated inhumanely and neglected, and she became determined to improve conditions, and by 1843, uh, oh, I'm sorry, it was, it was Massachusetts, not New Jersey, and by 1843, uh, was speaking to the Massachusetts State Legislature about better treatment and the establishment of state-run institutions for the treatment of the mentally ill. Her reports filled with dramatic accounts of prisoners being flogged, starved, chained, physically and sexually abused by their keepers, left naked without heat or sanitation. Uh, These reports shocked her audience, galvanized a movement to improve conditions for the imprisoned and the insane, and her work directly led to funding for all those Kirkbride asylums. Uh, Between 1825 and 1865, the number of asylums in the United States increased from 9 to 62. And then it just, you know, kept on increasing from there. Sadly, those places ended up becoming just as bad as the places she was getting people out of. But at least the government was starting to take treatment of the mentally ill more seriously. And it did help, it did help improve the mental health movement uh, in the effect that it, it went away from these old beliefs and demonic origins of mental illness. Uh, and, and the belief that, you know, you could just will yourself into getting better. And they knew something else at least was going on. Uh, and then interestingly, uh, Dorothea Dix died in 1887 at the age of 85 in a New Jersey hospital in Trenton, one of the asylums she helped establish. How is that for dedication to the cause? You know, if this, if this place is good enough for the mentally ill, it's good enough for me. I don't think I'd be that committed. Well, well, if you're so proud of your new mental health facility, why don't you just go live there yourself? 
you know, you know, on second thought, I'm, I'm actually not that proud of it. I'm going to, I'm going to go grab a nice hotel for my final years, someplace with room service, uh, someplace without poorly treated maniacs. So anyway, that's a little info about how asylums such as the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum in West Wenton, West Virginia, came to exist. Brief overview of how things were for the mentally ill before the advent of asylums. Uh, and all my research about this particular asylum and the history of asylums in general, I inevitably came across some articles about some of America's and some of the world's worst asylums. So let's take a, let's take a peek into a little bit of what I found and dig into uh, a new segment I'm calling Super Scary Stuff. All right, let's start with Topeka State Hospital, Kansas. The Topeka State's hospital's legacy is a story of a patient uh, who had been strapped down so long that his skin had started growing over the straps. Holy shit. I don't know how long that would take. But I'm guessing over a year, God, just being strapped so long that your that your skin just it just like it starts to absorb the. St- oh my, that's like something out of a horror movie. Uh, there was also reports of abuse, rape, castration as a means to control their patients. Castration went on there until the mid 1940s. Holy shit! Uh, if you did escape being shackled and, and naked, uh, being naked for months on end, there was a very different kind of hell waiting for you at the Topeka State Hospital. Patients were given absolutely nothing to do in an attempt to avoid overstimulating them, and they were just putting rocking chairs and just <laughs> forced to stare blankly at walls. Ah, that's... At one point, it's like, oh, what's the big deal? You just set them in a rocket. That sounds like, man, so horrible. Just what? Because I'm sure that went on for, like, years. Just sitting there in the rocking chair thinking about how fun life used to be when you still had nuts before they took them from you. <laughs> what a special kind of hell. My God. Ah. <sighs> The Danvers State Hospital in Massachusetts. This is another gothic Kirkbride asylum. The structure was originally melt, uh, meant to contain, <laughs> to contain 600 patients, but in 1939, it had a daily population of 2,360. Also about four times what it was supposed to. This huge gothic building was constructed in the 1870s as a home for the mentally ill and insane, aiming to treat its inhabitants with kindness and compassion. But then it became known as the birthplace of the lobotomy. Oh, God. Uh, physician Walter Freeman performed the U.S.'s first transorbitable lobotomy in 1936. Uh, after that, many large psychiatric hospitals took to the procedure, uh, and they started using it themselves as procedure of the ice pick to the eye that I described earlier, which was used to treat everything from daydreaming and backaches to delusions and major depression. <laughs> oh, my God. You go, you go in there with a sore back. Man, my back's really hurting. Can you, can you help me with that, doctor? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just lay down over there. Let me grab my ice pick. What? Why would you? Ah, no, no, no. It fixes everything. It fixes everything. We found out that just a little picking around, a uh, little stabby motion through your eye into your brain really just kind of knocks out most of everything. You won't care about anything after that. Oh, man. Uh, the doctors did other things there, like overdosing patients on insulin, putting them into these comas. That was supposed to somehow cure mental illness. Violent shock treatments. And sometimes they did that just, uh, again, a lot of times these places did that as a way to control the population. Like, hey, fucking calm down, or you get Dr. Shockey McShockerton again. Uh, Danvers was finally shuttered in 1992, uh, and a lot of the buildings have been turned into apartments. My God. My God. Man, this uh, old old Dr. Icepick McBrain Stabber, he and Dr. Shockey McShockerton, that must be where they completed their residencies. And now, and now, now turned into apartments. Why? What? 
Living in an apartment that used to be part of an insane asylum where the ice pick lobotomy was invented. Why? Why? You you know. You know that some dark fucking weirdos live there right now. Right? I, I, like, I bet there are pentagrams and Ouija boards in no less than 10% of those apartments. And I would say at least 15% of the men uh, living in these apartments own a black trench coat and listen to Scandinavian death metal. Um, okay. Another treatment device that may have been used at either one of the uh, above-mentioned asylums is the tranquilizer chair. The old tranquilizer chair. And it is as bad as it sounds. This is a mechanical chair uh, invented by Dr. Benjamin Rush, who is regarded as the father of American psychiatry. Uh, it was uh, devised in order to treat or constrain mental patients during treatment. Dr. Rush, he, he was the first uh, psychiatrist in, you know, in America to believe that mental illness is a disease of the mind and not a possession uh, of demons. And that's the only good thing he added to anything. His classic work, Observations and Inquiries Upon the Diseases of the Mind, published in 1812, was the first psychiatric textbook printed in the U.S., and his belief at the time was that, yeah, madness was an arterial disease, an inflammation of the brain, as it was believed that uh, uh, mental illness was caused by abnormalities in the bodily humors or blood. This chair was designed to allow a physician to easily bleed his patient and or treat the, the humors themselves by controlling blood flow and pressure. So you could bleed them, or you could just, like, cut off circulation to various parts of the body. Uh, Rush believed that holding the patient in the specially designed confining chair would control blood flow to the brain and lessen muscular physically, physical activity to lower blood pressure and heart rate. Basically, the mechanics of the chair had the patient restrained so as not to move at all uh, and force physical relaxation. A <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it was very relaxing. A patient would sit upright with their arms, legs, and chest bound to the chair while their head was kept in a partially open box. <laughs> Uh, I have a picture of this chair at timesuckpodcast.com. It is fucking horrific. It's like a torture chair. It's an obvious torture chair. Uh, to be fair to the doctor, bleeding uh, via cutting open a vein or artery and literally just letting it bleed for a while um, was a popular treatment of the day, uh, as, as was applying a shit ton of leeches to someone's body, which is, that one was more popular in Europe. Uh, but even George Washington would bleed from time to time when he wasn't feeling good. Just, just get that bad blood out. Ugh. Okay. Now let's, let's cut to the modern day. Every, everything we've looked at so far has been what's gone on in the past, what's gone on in America. Let's see what's going on right now in a horrible Central American mental health facility, the, the Frederico Mora Hospital. Uh, this is from a 2014 BBC article in an episode of the BBC show, Our World, World's Most Dangerous Hospital. This is hospital in Guatemala has been described by campaigners trying to reform it as the world's most abusive and dangerous mental health institution. Uh, this, these, uh, these, you know, BBC people go in and they say that the patients appear to be, have been heavily sedated. Their heads have been shaved and most are dressed in rags with nothing on their feet. Others are completely naked, exposing their dirty skin, covered in their feces. They look more like concentration camp prisoners than patients. Uh, the Frederico Mora Hospital has honed about 340 patients, including 50 violent and mentally disturbed criminals. A male nurse tells me that two or three nurses have to look after 60 to 70, uh, patients, uh, you know, just that little team ha are responsible for that many. Uh, and then they explain that that's, that's, why, that's why they have to sedate them constantly, just to be able to do their jobs. And while the BBC is filming, the director uh, himself of this place admits that the guards sexually abuse the patient. The hospital, he says, is a big place where anything can happen. Holy shit, what a that is, that is That's pretty bad when, as the director, you know, being, being interviewed for a documentary, you're like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah a lot of my patients are getting raped. Mm -hmm. yeah, oh, yeah, real problem. Something I need to talk to the director about. Wait, but wait, but you're the director. Ooh, mm, that's interesting. That is interesting. How does that make you feel to know that I'm the director talking about the director? One woman says she was sexually abused by a male nurse while sleeping. She was just 17 at the time, a virgin. 
she said since she was sedated, she wasn't aware about it, uh, that, you know, that it happened. But then, you know, blood on the sheets next day, she realizes what's, what's gone on, and then she's pregnant. And uh, the U.S. Camp, uh, campaign group Disability Rights International, DRI, spent three years collecting evidence on Frederico Mora. And in a report published in 2012, the group described the hospital as, yeah, the most dangerous facility our investigators have witnessed anywhere in the Americas. On one visit, DRI managed to film a female patient explaining she had been sexually abused on her first day in the hospital while tied to a wall. And they say, quote, the sexual abuse makes this place one layer more horrific than any place I've been seen before. Uh, Hospital staff, fearing reprisals uh, for speaking out, uh, did speak to the BBC uh, reporters on the condition that they could be interviewed together. And they just said, we don't have the medication. We need to treat the patients. It's dirty. There are rats and cockroaches. Uh, I think I speak for all of us when I say the abuses committed in the hospital by guards are common knowledge. Oh, man. Uh, the staff, I guess, were in tears when they're saying this. It's, it said it's not just dangerous for the patients, but for us, too. We have complained, but no one listens. Working at the hospital is terrifying. So if you're traveling to Guatemala, good idea not to appear insane there. Sounds like a terrible place to be committed. There are other places in Serbia and Mexico and North Korea, etc., that seem just as bad and possibly maybe even worse. But uh, unless patients are being routinely executed somewhere or still uh, being given lobotomies someplace I haven't heard of, uh, I feel like constant raping is is about as bad as it gets. You know, starvation covered in feces and constantly raped. Shitty place. Shitty place. Not getting five stars in any kind of TripAdvisor report. And now let's get to Bedlam. And I and I bring up Bedlam. Because uh, I don't think any discussion of, of insane asylums would be complete without digging into Bedlam, the original modern madhouse. This place is so fucking nuts that the name for the institution, the nickname, Bedlam, became its own word. A word now defined as a scene or state of wild uproar and confusion. Like, like think about that. Its very name is synonymous with mayhem. And <laughs> that says a lot. So here's a quick history of it. It, it started innocently enough as a charitable institution. But eventually, Bethlehem Royal Hospital became known as Bedlam, one of the worst places in the world. In 1247, the Priory of the New Order of St. Mary of Bethlehem uh, opened it in Bishopsgate, London, and its original goal was to collect money to aid the Crusader Church. Monks managed the building, donated the collected coins to the poorest in London, and then it went from a charitable institution to an asylum a couple years later as the monks noticed a number of mad, homeless people you know, just uh, on the streets of London. Uh, no one obviously understood much about psychiatry in those days. We already know that now. Uh, people who had conditions we know now uh, as depression, dementia, schizophrenia, epilepsy, anxiety, learning disabilities, other mental illnesses were all housed together and given the exact same treatment. Uh, and this treatment administered by the monks included daily punishments and lessons in scripture. Uh, they were given a diet uh, that was very plain, free of vegetables. <laughs> I don't know why, why that should help. Uh, inventory records show that the monks purchased chains, locks, manacles, stocks, you know, those little things where your head gets put through the board and your hands and you're just fucking stuck there. Uh, presumably uh, devices uh, that they use for, you know, treatment. Yeah, that sounds great. Just torture bread, meat, and Jesus. If that doesn't get you feeling better, you're just being difficult. I'm sure that place was uh, a living hell for everyone who stayed there. The monks were replaced in 1370 by Ed, uh, Ed, <laughs> King Edward III. Why did I just call him Ed. They were replaced in 1370 by Ed. You know, Eddie, King Eddie. Uh, The people he appointed in in their place became known as keepers, and they had little to no experience with treating the mentally ill or even working in the hospital. But to be fair, who the fuck knew anything about mental illness back then? 1403, hospital treasurer Peter Taverner. What a British-sounding name. Mr. Taverner. Barrister Taverner. uh, Was found guilty of theft and embezzlement. By now, the hospital was already known as Bedlam. Bedlam. Such an nefarious-sounding name. 
Bedlam. When the city of London took over the management of the hospital in 1546, the governors of Brideswell appointed their own keepers. Things got much worse after that. After an inspection in 1598, the hospital was deemed not fit for any man to dwell in. That's a quote. And called, quote, loathlessly, filthily kept. And this is by medieval standards. So you know it's fucking terrible. I mean, these people are used to living on dirt floors with no proper sanitation. And they're like, oh, no, no one should live here. Ugh. At the time, there were 21 patients who had been locked up for the better part of a decade, probably in sh- shackles, you know. One had been there for more than 20 years. Ugh. King James, uh, I don't know, how, how do you live that long in that kind of situation? King James I appointed uh, Helkiah Crook, to <laughs> Mr. Crook, perfect, to administer the hospital. Uh, should have picked someone else. Yeah, true to his name, he embezzled money, stole from patients, took the charitable donations for himself. Uh, whatever money he just, he didn't, uh, whatever things he didn't keep, he, he, he sold to the patients. So something like the like people would like give them food, you know, uh, for charity, and then he would charge the the patients for the free food he was given. And if he didn't pay up, you fucking starve to death. <laughs> My God, you're already in this torture hellhole pit, and now you're now you have to. How do you even pay for food? You just have to hope that like family members, uh, you know, give it to you. If you're abandoned, you're just you're just shit out of luck. Well, the new King Charles I orders an ex- inspection of Bethlehem uh, in 1631. And again, that's if, if you're confused why I'm going back and forth with names. That's the official name, Bethlehem, Bedlam, they're synonymous. Uh, launched an investigation when it was determined that most of the patients were probably going to starve to death. And then Crook was fired two years later. That was my that was like one of my favorite lines in researching this. We're like, hey, man, <laughs> uh, we realize that you've been taking a lot of the money and a lot of the people are starving to death. So shit has to change. Or in a couple of years, we're going to let you go. How does he still work there for two years? Oh, Charles I put a new system in place that included a physician, a visiting surgeon, and an apothecary. But again, this is, these are like 17th century surgeons, so it's like somebody like a tad less barbaric. Uh, hospital closed in 1667, reopened in a new building at Moorfields in 1675. Uh, this new hospital was sprawling and expensive, became known as a palace for lunatics. Because after just 13 years, it opened uh, uh, to the public as an attraction. And just for people coming in to see the attraction, two ominous statues were installed over its entrance gate. One named Melancholy, who appeared calm uh, but sad, and the other named Raving Madness in this crazy pose who was chained and angry. How fucking evil is that? Let's let the public come in and mock the patients. Let's put two scary, evil-looking statues out front to give the place kind of a haunted house vibe, too. Just make it real cartoonish, not take it seriously at all. And the patients were were, were still cruelly treated at this uh, pretty palace. They were regarded as prisoners instead of ill people. They were neglected, starved, locked away in isolation. And then the, uh, the visitors were allowed to come there, interact with the patients, kind of like, uh, like they were seeing animals in a zoo. People from all walks of life would give the patients pennies to encourage them to sing songs and fucking dance. <laughs> My God. Ah, here's, a, here's a penny, you nut. Now do a little jig for me. <laughs> Jesus. Ah, that's so cruel. Um, the patients were forced to meet the visitors against their will. You know, you don't want to fucking dance. Well, too bad. Here's the whip. Get out there. Go on, go on dance. And even better, the visitors weren't even supervised. They could just kind of come as they please, walk around anywhere they went. They're, they were uh, able to drink alcohol. I don't know if it was served there or not, but they were, they were, they would come there and get drunk. And, <laughs> and, uh, hol- it says holidays drew particularly large crowds that often turned loud and, uh, rowdy. Uh, one writer living in London said Bethlehem was quote, a dry wart for loiterers, a promenade of rogues. 
I love the language they used back then. Henry McKenzie's 1771 work, The Man of Feeling, described a visit to the hospital as follows, quote, their conductor led them first to the dismal mansions of those who are in the most horrid state of incurable madness. The clanking of chains, the wildness of their cries, and the appreciations which some of them uttered formed a scene inexpressibly shocking. Again, holy shit. You know, let's not only let the general public come gawk at our patients, let's let them get drunk and just party there and just not even supervise it. Like, imagine if a, a young, good-looking female patient at this place. Her life was a parade of horrors. You know it. Well, a new manager came in 1795, John Haslam. He believed he could cure madness and practice his own brand of therapy on his patients. They were beaten severely until they could behave the way he demanded. He wanted to beat the bad behavior out of them. Uh, his therapeutic approach involved, quote, complete domination. So he sounds like a real fucking peach. Patients were given cold baths, uh, made to sit in swings for rotation therapy. This is, this is one of the most horrible methods I found here, just, and, and just so nonsensical and absurd. Uh, rotation therapy is when a patient is put in a chair that's suspended from the ceiling by something like a chain, and then the chair was then spun uh, at the direction of the doctor, sometimes at more than 100 rotations a minute, the patient would often vomit, experience extreme vertigo, pass out. Uh, but this was all seen as healthy reactions with the potential for healing. Uh, again, I have, a, I have a picture for this device up at timesuckpodcast.com. Who thinks up this shit? What quack doctor comes up with some correlation between vomit and better mental health? God, life sucked when no one understood how the body wor- or the mind worked. They thought meant, like, that you could just like vomit out mental illness. Uh, the chief surgeon at this time was Brian Crother, hired by Haslam himself. Crother began his own experiments in the morgue, uh, carefully dissecting the brains of dead patients. So he was—he sounds like an interesting dude as well. Uh, 1814, an outsider visited the hospital, saw these deplorable conditions, found patients chained to walls, naked, malnourished. Patients were also victim to bloodletting by leeches, cupping glass therapy. Uh, you may have heard of that from the Olympian Michael Phelps. Remember, he had all those bruises on his body this last Olympics. You know, some they had some kind of suction cup thing to pull blood to the surface, increase blood flow, increase athletic performance. Uh, I don't know if I buy any of that shit. But uh, I'm sure it wasn't used for that in Bedlam. It was just like, let's, let's see if this painful, odd blood-moving technique does anything for these poor people's broken brains. Uh, there was the inducing of blisters, uh, which is even worse than it sounds. They would just fucking burn people to create blisters on the skin and then drain the blister of that good old insanity juice. Looks like you got a little bit of insanity juice in your blister. What the fuck? What if that actually worked? Just, huh, who knew? Who knew the voices in my head were coming from the blister juice? Oh, good thing you, you poured some of that boiling water on my back. At the time, I, I, I thought it was just needless torture. But you're, you, you, sire, are a visionary. Treatment was so severe that the facility refused to admit patients deemed too meek to withstand it. You had to be strong to even be admitted there so you could withstand the torture. And, and indeed, uh, many of those people didn't even survive. Modern investigations have uncovered these mass graves on the property, uh, dug exclusively for those who died under Bedlam's hair. Uh, and, and just the conditions, man. One guy there, this former Marine, was inside a chain harness, like this weird like chain harness swing that could be controlled by the staff. And basically when they pulled on it, he would just slam it against the wall. And this man had been in this rig for 9 to 12 years. 9 to 12, 12 years in a fucking swinging torture chair getting slammed into the wall. How in God's name do you rationalize using that as some type of curative device? I don't think you do. I think he pissed off somebody and spent the next 12 years regretting it, you know? Really regretting saying, like, what are you going to do about it then? What are you going to do about it? And then the next 12 years, just like, oh, shit. 
Uh, eventually, sketches of the inside of the hospital were published in the newspaper, forcing yet another investigation. It would become the biggest investigation into the history of any asylum. Uh, both Haslam and the chief surgeon were fired. Should have been killed. Jesus. Things finally changed. But again, they're living in a different time. Ah, fuck, I don't know. Things finally changed when uh, resident physician William Hood took over in 1852. His therapeutic techniques promoted a more peaceful, quiet environment. He brought in magazines and crafts to keep patients busy, even held monthly dances where patients could mingle with the staff and, and visitors, but not in a creepy, weird way like before. A uh, new building was purchased in 1926, and the entire operation moved to Beckenham in 1930, and Bethlehem remains there to this day. A museum was opened in 1970 that displays artwork from patients and archives from the hospital's history. Uh, they continue to provide psychiatric care. The days of chaining patients to the walls and starving them, thankfully, are over. Uh, it is still referred to as Bedlam, though. Oh, man, if only Tide Swinging Chair Guy was alive to see how far they'd come. All right, well, now we know exactly how bad things used to be for the mentally ill and for people who, you know, daydreamed and had political ideas. Uh, today, at least in America, the mentally ill seem to be treated a lot better. Uh, I'm sure there's some level of abuse in certain places that it continues, I mean, as it has against the helpless and large institutions since the dawn of, you know, humanity. But things overall are way better uh, than they were as recent as the mid-20th century. According to numerous articles uh, I've read about the state of modern mental health facilities in America, uh, they no longer use straitjackets, something that was at least, uh, I guess was the least of your problems back in the 19th century. Uh, straitjackets uh, were invented in 1790 and routinely used in all the facilities I described, such as Trans-Allegheny. Now they use chemical restraints, which is a pleasant euphemism uh, for a knockout drug. Still, I, I do think being drugged is better than being kept in a straitjacket or, you know, chained to a wall. Uh, you get to bring your clothes except for belts and other stuff you could, you know, hurt yourself with or hang yourself with. You get to actually wear what you want. You know, you, pr you probably have to leave your favorite knife necklace or brass knuckle belt buckle at home, but you at least don't have to wear a hospital gown or be naked and covered in shit. Uh, you're generally not stuck there for years. Most people only stay 72 hours or less because that's the law in most states for how long a psychiatric hospital can hold you without your consent. I mean, that's obviously not true for the criminally insane who are sentenced to those places, but, uh, but you know, odds are you're not going to spend 10 years in some padded room because you have business nerves or drink bad whiskey. Uh, you, you don't get thrown in an ice bath, lobotomized, castrated, or shocked anymore. If you're out of control, you're chemically restrained, occasionally restrained, uh, briefly with hand restraints, which sounds kind of like a, a handcuffs. But for the most part, you're just monitored by staff, and, and, and staff who, who seem less abusive and, and rapey than they did in days past. Other than that, it sounds like there's a lot of meetings with doctors to see how you're responding to various medications, individual, individual therapy sessions, group sessions, group recreation, you know, stuff like watching movies or playing board games, visitation hours, decent meals. Uh, basically, it sounds like a, a better place to live than your average home in a third world country. To, to describe it in the words of someone who's actually stayed in a mental institution, here, here's a little excerpt from Jennifer O'Brien, I will read, uh, who described what's saying at the Holy Hill Hospital, a psych hospital in Raleigh, North Carolina, uh, was like in an article for psychcentral.com just a couple years back. She says, Mental hospitals are very misunderstood places. There is a certain stigma not only attached to being a patient in a mental hospital, but to the whole field of mental health to begin with. The people I met during my stay at Holy Hill were not crazy. They were not nuts. They just needed a little extra help in a safe, relaxing place to recuperate from their problems. Most of the people I met were perfectly normal, functioning members of society with jobs, families, friends, and a positive future. Some were students like myself. Going to a mental hospital is nothing to be ashamed of or embarrassed by, and I encourage everyone to take that step if they find it necessary. 
Life can be overwhelming, and sometimes we just need to heal. Holy Hill changed my life. I went in suicidal, depressed, and a terrified mess, and two months later, I came out in the process of being healed with new friends and a new perspective on life. My hospitalization not only saved my life, it changed it. Well, nice to see things have gotten a lot better and that the movement Dorothea Dick started, you know, while it took a little longer than she had hoped to, to really kind of change things in the way she wanted, she did change things eventually. You know, that, that is nice. All of that was, you know, a lot nicer than, uh, you know, being forced to dance with drunks uh, and being horribly abused by staff and tortured. Wow. Well, enough positivity. Time for some top five takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. All right, number one, if you're mentally ill, do not step inside a time machine and travel back to any place in the world before 1950, and don't even go back to yesterday in Guatemala. It super sucks. Number two, less than 100 years ago, people who had actually graduated from medical school were still using the equivalent of an ice pick to scramble the brains of people who suffer from things like daydreaming too much. Ah, oh, Jesus, I don't know about you, but that makes me a little leery of doctors today. Hopefully 100 years from now, no one will be pointing out something equally insane currently happening. Number three, reading too many novels, masturbating in a deranged way, and being stressed out about your job were valid reasons to be admitted to an overcrowded asylum where you could be raped and or killed in the late 19th century. Other reasons I didn't mention earlier are greediness, women trouble, overstudy of religion, immoral life, how wonderfully vague and subjective that one is, self-abuse. You've been abusing yourself? Well, <laughs> let's get you into the asylum so we can abuse you too, my friend. Stop hogging all the fun, you maniac. Number four, mental health advocate Dorothea Dix was so committed to the mental health reformation cause she spent the last six years of her life living in one of the very asylums she helped get created and built. She's either a much better person than any of us or also was insane herself. That is some crazy shit. Number five, if you come across a large, gothic, foreboding 19th century estate that is now closed other than for the occasional corny ghost tour uh, but used to be an insane asylum, you now know that odds are it was designed by Dr. Thomas Kirkbride. You know, just a little time-suck knowledge for you to drop at dinner or at a party, you know, so you can come across a little smarter and in the know than your friends and family. I mean... That's part of why we do this, isn't it? Time suck. Top five takeaways. Oh, okay, everybody. We did it. We did it. Thanks for exploring another Time Suck with me. Uh, everyone, thanks for all the comments and emails and social media posts and the wonderful iTunes reviews this past week. So, so nice. So nice. And for clearly talking to your friends about the podcast. Uh, it feels like that, that, like that bonus Alien episode is going to be coming up a lot faster than I expected. Uh, we're only a, a, around 30 iTunes reviews from hitting that magical 200 uh, iTunes review number and recording the bonus Friday paranormal extravaganza. Uh, also, thanks for the topic suggestions. They've been pouring in, and I've been adding all of them to the list uh, of potential future episodes. A lot of great stuff to choose from. Very excited. Uh, I love learning about things I, I would have never even thought to explore. You know, why, why couldn't school have been this fun? Maybe if it was more fun, I would have ended up with a real job and never got into comedy in the first place, and we'd never have this podcast, though. So thanks for being super boring math and computer science professors. And thanks to all the new listeners who moved over from Pandora after listening to me talk about the podcast, uh, my Dan Cummins Pandora Station. And finally, some tour dates. I'm going to be at Zany's in Chicago, February 8th through the 11th. Hyenas in Plano, Texas, a suburb of Dallas, February 23rd through 25th. I'll be at the Tacoma Comedy Club in Tacoma, Washington. March 2 through 4th, Charlie Goodnights in Raleigh, North Carolina, March 9 through 11th, 
Tons of more dates listed, more being added at dancummins.tv, or you can follow me on Instagram or Facebook, at dancummins.comedy on both. Look for posts about tour dates. Also, a link to tour dates at goodoldtimesuckpodcast.com, where you can find pictures that correspond to this episode and all the other episodes. So have a great week, everybody. Stay curious, and if you're committed to a mental institution and you're not enjoying your stay, think about this episode and be glad that you're not being shackled, needlessly spun around until you vomit, or having a sadist poke around in your noggin with an ice pick. Life is really all about perspective, isn't it? Rack your look for spring at Nordstrom Rack and save up to 60% on brands you love. Rag & Bone, Vince, Marc Jacobs, Adidas, Joes, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. Score new dresses, denim, sandals, designer bags, and sunglasses, plus updates for the family and home. Get your spring on for less, up to 60% less, today at your Nordstrom Rack store. What will you find? This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you suddenly had an extra hour show up in your day every day, what would you do with it? Work out, sleep, read a book, play Fortnite, call your mom, take judo lessons, finally watch all the episodes of Shameless? A lot of us spend a lot of our time wishing we had more time. But why? Time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The bad news is that you're not going to get that 25th hour. But what you can probably do is reprioritize where you spend some of your time. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it with your time. This year, my health is more important to me than cranking out another stand-up special as fast as possible. So I canceled a tour, sacrificed that income, and decided to spend a lot of the time I just got back working out more, resting more, relaxing more, and enjoying time with family, friends, and just myself. And I'm so glad I did. I feel better than I have in a long time. And my BetterHelp therapist, Debbie, was very helpful in getting me to make the decision to pull back. Thank you, Debbie. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com TimeSuck today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash TimeSuck.